Welcome ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and prefer not to disclose, back to the Undressing Underground Podcast. Rob has had the flu for the past couple weeks and is still essentially unable to speak. So, we'll catch up with him later. In the meantime, we have Sarah Century talking to Brie Coco Davies. Sarah recorded this around January of last year, but we have it now, so here it is. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for a new project Sarah Century and Rob Marvin have been putting together. But yeah. Anyway, here's Sarah Century introducing her interview with writer and musician, Brie Coco Davies. I met Coco Davies several years ago when she was playing in Night of Joy, one of my favorite bands of all time. They were local to Denver and so was I, so we tended to play a lot of shows together, and we've toured together as well. Notably, she's been working as a freelance writer for several years, contributing to Denver's Westward. Her writing focuses around subjects of preventing gentrification, social justice, DIY music, and of course, feminism. Catching up with her is always a delight. Without further ado, Coco Davies. I just kind of wanted to know a little bit about your background. Like, you're from Denver, correct? Born and raised. Yeah. One of the rare few. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, what, what, was, what was your early background like? What kind of started to direct you towards music? I feel like my parents didn't really take me to concerts. Like, I wasn't one of those kids, but I was around music in my home. You know, I always, I, I talk about, you know, you like learn about music from so many different ways growing like as a kid and you you never know what your introduction to things are going to be because for me it was like I listened to the radio a lot so I knew a lot about 90s R&B and freestyle and and that kind of music because it was on the radio and I was a skating ring kid and, and things like that but I feel like the first time I started making my own decisions about the music I listened to um going out and seeking records and going to concerts and things was like when I was around 12 or 13. One of the biggest influences for me was 120 Minutes, um, the TV show on MTV. Right. And uh, MTV actually was very pivotal in my discovery of music as a, as an adult, like as I became an adult. And um, it was a different channel. I mean, it's like everybody, there's like the golden age of MTV or whatever. But for me, the golden age of MTV was like 1990 to 1996. They were doing, they did a lot of different things. They had a lot of different shows, but 120 Minutes was the show where I learned about music that really resonated with me. And it's the first time I saw women playing music. Right. Like really, women I thought were cool playing hosting music. Hosting too. Right? Yeah, hosting. And even, I mean, and even when we get into not even just um, 120 Minutes, and then after school, I watched Yo! MTV Raps and, uh, and Alternative Nation. And um, there was just... MTV showed me women playing music, um, whether it was Janet Jackson or SWV or uh, even D-Light, The Breeders, Lush, um, and then, of course, Hole and Babes in Toyland and, and those bands that really, um, Bjork, Kate Bush, for Susie Sue, that's the first time I saw any of that was through MTV. And then I started going to shows, and my first, like, my first concert was Lollapalooza 1994, and I was 13, and my dad had to take me and a bunch of my friends, which was so embarrassing. But <laughs> the breeders were there, Smashing Pumpkins. Um, the, I love the Beastie Boys. And, like, uh, it was just, it, it, it changed my life, like, seeing music. And then my next concert after that was, like, what felt like the, a real show. Because that, you know, festival's, like, different. But um, it was whole at what was called Mammoth Gardens, which is now the Fillmore Auditorium on Colfax. And... Um, it was just so powerful to see 
women like just being so awesome, just like <laughs> looking cool. It's like so dumb that it matters, but like Courtney Love looked so cool. I practiced like I used to. I had this whole setup in my bedroom, like so. I was really lucky in that my parents were a musician. Like my dad's a musician, my mom was like in band. My parents really like understood music. So when I was like, I want to play bass guitar, and I, the first time I saw a woman playing bass guitar was in the Smashing Pumpkins chair rock video, and Darcy Rutsky is playing this instrument. I'm like, oh, I want to do that, and my dad was like, cool, let's do it. So I got a bass guitar for my. 14th birthday I think and I, I posed with it a lot for many years before I played it and uh like I had a full-length mirror in my room and I had like this cardboard box that I used as a monitor I didn't know it was a monitor you know but like that's how like Courtney Love like tipped back yeah. on the monitor you know always like, like, like had the one leg up yeah yeah with her patent leather heel and like that 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 was like that's an image I think that was burned into my brain influenced so much of my stage persona mm -hmm. because my stage persona is a little different than my personal you know I right. mean it's a little more exaggerated and stuff true but of everyone yeah but she like uh, but it's weird because I think people don't necessarily think that yeah like then if they meet me only in this one way then they think that's how I am all the time and I'm, I'm a little bit more introverted and stuff like that blah 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 but like that influenced me so much um in terms of wanting to be that person mm -hmm. and uh what was interesting was as I got older, I felt a little bit of shame for not knowing about Riot Girl. I was actually just going to bring that up because what I was thinking is, is that the bands that you're listing, such as L7, Hole, these are all bands that I was into. But you notice that um, even just like as far as like societal consideration, those bands are kept separate from Riot Girl, even though we would obviously consider L7 to be like a feminist band. One of the band. most feminist. I mean, they, they stepped into this realm of like sort of metal. Only dudes were there. Yeah. And they did it in a way that was not beautiful and it's also it's similar to to the fact that like for instance at that time you have like queen latifah doing unity and oh stuff God, like that yeah, and i she, yes and nobody and is like it. nobody is connecting that there was a wide feminist movement that oh wasn't just riot girl in the 90s no and and d and I, I i bring up delight a lot because lady miss care was this figure from the new york club scene yeah but if you watch interviews with her, her like vision for the world is like the world click, which is like where everybody is a part of this movement. And at that time, MTV used her. There's like a commercial you can find on YouTube and it's like vote, baby, vote. And it's like <laughs> I saw that at 10 years old and was like, yeah, I'm going to vote. I can't wait to be able to vote because Lady Miss Care told me to vote. But she was like such a, 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 a knowing now what I know about New York club culture and how much it's influenced popular culture, how big she was too yeah and like her and queen latifah and uh mc light and then and then kim gordon and then uh you know like the b-52s like all these people were connected but they're all separated it's weird yeah i agree they want to be lumped they want to lump us together when they're talking about only the things that women can do but when we're really talking about the unity of women that's not exactly connected exactly you know, we're all supposed to be separated like we're all supposed to like the Kathleen Hanna, Courtney Love situation. Like, right. They're I, fighting. Right. Or, you know, and, and I've, I've Nicki seen, Minaj and Taylor Swift. Right, they're fighting. Right. And like, and it's so weird. I go so back and forth on pop music too, because I, I'm a defender. I'm like a huge defender, for instance, of Kesha, because she's had a really shitty um, experience as she's come out to speak about her producer um yeah sexually abusing her yeah and now she's being ignored and yeah. i'm like this is not fair because she is speaking the truth and she's a, a, a real artist i hate that term but like i'm an i'm an apologizer for women regardless of the genre but then i get to this point with someone like taylor swift where i'm like i don't want to see her anymore I, but it's also not my choice mm -hmm. if she reaches one girl Oh, yeah. That makes her become a feminist, then I'm Taylor Swift has done her job. Totally. You know? Agree. But, um, but yeah, so the, the Kathleen, the sort of not being a part of Riot Girl thing is really interesting to me because as I got older and I got into feminism, which was like way late in my life, it was early in my life. It just wasn't labeled as such. Like, mm -hmm. I started a women's group at my high school and I wrote uh, sometimes some very controversial pieces for my high school newspaper about <laughs> how I felt about women in music. But, um, but, you know, I didn't get into feminism using that word until my late 20s. But, 
there was this time where I thought I'm not legitimate because I don't have a connection to Riot Girl. Mm-hmm. I learned about empowering myself and other women um, through the more main what's considered mainstream rock and roll involving women in the '90s, which was Courtney Love, right? And you know everybody that associ- is associated with her, whether they're actually associated with her or not. Yeah. So the time frame. You yeah. Know, Kim and Kelly Deal. And and lush and you know and all these these bands that are just have women in them. Elastica. Or, Elastica. <laughs> I was just gonna say Justine. Like, so that Elastica is was light years ahead, and I can't believe that they loving them didn't tap me into British music from the seventies. Like right. I don't know how I didn't figure that out to dig until later when like I learned wire. about Delta Five. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. But um. Yeah, so I've always had a little... I mean, I've gotten over it now. I know a lot about Riot Girl, and I understand its role, and I love the music. Um, but when I am talking about my beginnings as sort of a feminist music seeker, music writer, music maker, um, it, it really began with um, the Breeders and uh, and Hole and L7, TLC even though, and salt and Peppa. Like, those groups are not super on my list of, like, music I sit down and love to listen to, but their impact was inevitable. Like, it changed everything for what I saw. Yeah. You know, like, salt and Peppa were a powerful trio of women. Yeah. And they were on MTV all the time. It was yeah. awesome, you yeah. know? And, like, like in wanting Rover to see them and seeing their clothes and seeing their hair and seeing their, like, no bullshit attitude, like... That took a lot looking now. I'm like, man, they really probably dealt with a lot of, of um, you know, like it probably took a lot. JJ Fad, like yeah. being written out of the the NWA story that I just learned that that had happened. I didn't even know, you know. Yeah. It's just, yeah. That's the beautiful thing about women in music is you can keep digging and you will always find more stories that you didn't know. And even speaking of the 90s, like, and how there was that renaissance of feminism and women in music, I still feel that whenever you turn on an alternative station and they're playing the Pearl, Pearl Jam, Jam, Nirvana, Nirvana Soundgarden, Garden, yeah. but they're, Alice like, not James. playing Hole, and they're not playing... They, and they'll play Candlebox, but they won't play L7. Yeah. And they'll play, you know, it's just, like... It's active erasing. They'll play Jane's Addiction, but they won't play Babes in Toyland, like... Yeah, and that's the thing is when people talk about I love '90s music, like they're talking about they're white talking men. about white men. Yeah, white men's music, and no doubt a lot of that. It's it's interesting too because I have I loved Nirvana, mm-hmm. and I love Nirvana, and I try to ignore the sort of Velvet Elvis designation that Kurt Cobain has been given. Yeah, because um, it's gross. It is, and it's not representative of his. No one talks about his relationships with. Bikini Kill, you know, um, with Kathleen Hanna and Toby Vale, and um, nobody talks about his feminist commentary that he made directly at his audience of men that he didn't even want to be around. Like, yeah. And no one talks about the intimate relationship that he clearly had with Chris Novoselic as friends. Yeah. Because to me, um, that their relationship and Nirvana in that sense influenced how I felt about my partnership with Valerie with my, you know, in Night of Joy. Like I watched, I just learning so much about Nirvana influenced how I made music and then understanding the need for me to have a partner that I can make music with, Mm -hmm. you know, even though they were dudes, even though there's all this shit around Kurt and Courtney and like I said they're so separate to me that I don't I just don't think of them as one well also and you know when you talk about anytime you talk about a powerful woman woman in music um she's generally a whore or she's a murderer or she you know she's broken up the Beatles or oh why didn't she she die instead that's that's always the one yeah and it's like well yeah no her husband probably would have really loved it if she died instead like what (laughs) It's always some, like, really bleak shit that you hear out, come out of people. Yeah, and, God, and, like, Yoko Ono wasn't an artist in her own right for a long time before her oh, yeah. relationship materialized. I just got finished reading this book called Reconsidering Yoko by Lisa Carver. <gasps> it's great. Even though you do have such a strong history of music, uh, you also have been a writer for such a long time. So I kind of just wanted to ask, when you started writing, yeah. uh, what was your original subject matter like, and why did you start writing? 
you know, again, I can credit my super hippie parents. Yeah. For, <laughs> I, I, I realized as an adult how much um, some people are not as lucky as I was to have parents that really loved that I made art. Mm-hmm. And I started writing apparently at four years old because I have a notebook um, that is, uh, it says, like Breeze stories and it's, it says 1984 and this is like when my parents my I think it's my dad's handwriting and then there's I have all kinds of weird poems that I've written and stuff like that so I started writing at four years old and um I struggled at, for a while as an adult if was this given to me or was I doing this mm-hmm. like was I told I was going to be a writer or did I become a writer but I have been writing longer than I've doing been doing almost anything. Again, I was lucky because my parents were supportive, and then I went to Catholic school where um, we had to submit to writing contests all the time. I've been writing competitively, essentially, since um, middle school. Hmm. I got to high school, and there was the newspaper. And again, I like I mentioned, my high school writing... Uh, is really where I got into writing about music because it was at the same time I was be- getting to, you know, I started high school at 13. So it was the same year that I was go- starting to go into concerts and stuff. And um, I just found that I had a really big opinion. <laughs> and I didn't uh, feel ashamed about it. And right. I wanted to um, share it. It was definitely not as even-keeled as it is now that I'm an adult. I was very... I have some sort of shameful pieces. I have one called... <laughs> Lilith Fair Stop Female Noise Pollution. <laughs> I got to college and I took a journalism class and I hated it mm-hmm. and I thought it was dumb and I didn't want to learn about the history of journalism <laughs> and I quit writing. When I was like 24, my friend Jason Heller, who's a great writer and has been a longtime mentor to me, he sort of sought me out, thank God, and helped me along the way even though I wasn't asking for it. And uh, he... He asked me to do some stuff for him for Westward, actually, and I totally bombed it, and I didn't make... I don't even think I sent him copy. I don't know. I was a drunk, and I really fucked it up, but he did not hold that against me, and then I kind of got my shit together after I quit drinking and uh, started really writing again and um, graduated with a degree in journalism when I was, like, 26, and I moved to New York City. Um, I didn't do any writing there, and I had so many opportunities to like interview cool bands. And right. like, I mean, all this time I'm still going to shows, and I, I played in my first band, and you know all this stuff. But writing has sort of fallen to the side. But I was living with my friend Sarah Cass, who's a music photographer who works for Sub Pop. Yeah, used to work for K. Used to work for K. Does She's, some classic covers. She has changed. She changed the direction of my life. Um, by teaching me to be myself, create a brand, which is such a negative connotation now, but like create my brand as, as a writer and really push my voice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I had all these opportunities to interview all these bands that stayed with us in New York, but I didn't. But, um, but when I came back from New York City to Denver in 2008, um, it was just really eye-opening. I was like, oh, man, I've been in New York where everything you want to do, someone's already done a hundred times. Yeah. And... I got to Denver, and I was like, I can do whatever I want here. So I started writing uh, a blog, just like writing my own reviews of shows. Um, And then I hit up the Denver Post's music blog, Reverb. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, I want to write for you. And they were like, great, send me a sample. So I sent him a sample, and they were like, great, you're hired to not work for money. (laughs) And I reviewed 90 shows in one year. And I taught myself how to write. And then I started writing for the uh, Onions AV Club. Right. And then uh, and then I got in with Westward actually came to me. It's interesting when you don't realize your voice is radical. Yeah. Because you're saying what you're feeling. And mm-hmm. again, I really credit my upbringing for being told you can say what you believe and you can get behind what you believe as long as, like, you have good intention. And I have, for the most part, had good intention. I will say I've used my words as a weapon before. Um, but I'm learning how to not be spiteful. <laughs> <laughs> and I really want to... Uh, so, yeah. But, I mean, so I start. That's how I got in at Westward. And um, that publication has allowed me to do 
whatever I want. And it's been amazing. Yeah. The outcome has, for me personally, has been incredible to have print space and online space to share how I feel Mm -hmm. and be backed up by editors that believe in what I'm doing. Yeah. I think that that is something that strikes me about uh, your last several years of writing at the Westward has just been that you get to cover whatever subject you want to cover. Um, And I think that that's great because you use that to be able to talk about women's rights and to be able to talk about healthcare and to be able to talk about homelessness and to be able to talk about gentrification and music and just a long list of things. So I think that that's like one of the standout things about like your work at the Westward is, is that it's not defined by anything other than it's like your perspective. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. They let me say what I see. Um, I've, I don't think I've ever been turned down for a pitch. My next question was, what are some of your favorite writers and who were the people who kind of launched you on this? It's interesting. Um, again, being like thinking about being ashamed about not knowing the origins of Riot Girl, I was along for a long time ashamed of not being a book reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a book reader very heavily. I'm a magazine reader. Mm-hmm. I'm a long form story reader. I'm a short story reader. I love, I love magazine format. Mm-hmm. I grew up on magazine format. I've been reading. I loved Life magazine and Parade and like. <laughs> Yeah. terrible I loved I didn't I didn't really read highlights I didn't really read um like the kid oriented magazines I was always at the doctor's office like reading reader's digest when I'm like seven years old <laughs> I just loved that format mm-hmm. and um and so that's how I got into writing and um my earliest memories of like authors was like Chuck Klosterman used to do a piece in the back of Spin every month. And I loved that. I looked forward to that. And then um, I've since, like, not so much followed his writing, but his first couple books were, like, pretty crucial to how I felt I was able to share my own voice within the context of popular culture. Mm -hmm. You know, he he interjects his life into popular culture and how it lays out. And so does Jason Heller, like my writing mentor. He did an entire um, series for the AV Club, breaking down every year from like 1990 to 1999, um, every year in punk, based on his experience as a musician in Denver. Mm -hmm. And that was for a national publication. People don't get to do that, but Mm -hmm. he does it so well. So he is another writer that I've been reading in Westward. And it's like... I love that this this is the kind of writing I want to do. Um, and then again, also my editor, Patty Calhoun. I've been reading her since I was like 10 or 11 years old. Right. And so it was very localized and small. And then um, when it gets into like Rolling Stone, it's like so silly. But um, there used to be this section. I don't know if they still have it. It's called Random Notes. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, it was kind of like stars, they're just like us, but it was musicians doing people things. Right. And Jancy Dunn would do the little clips, and I loved her. I read I read random notes because I loved Jancy's like little, little cl- clips. And then, of course, Sassy Magazine, uh, Jane Pratt, and uh, Daisy, and I'm trying Everyone to that I've everyone. interviewed so far has brought up Sassy Magazine. Sassy... <laughs> Sassy was like so crazy and oh and you know all along this time I I I had this best friend growing up um named April and we were just like inseparable twin sister like people and we got into music together at the same time and then um but she was kind of always she had older cousins that were really cool that Mm -hmm. took us to shows and they kind of got her into things first so she would show me things like sassy and like music that I liked and, and stuff like that. So we, what's funny is now she's like an immigration lawyer or something. Like we went totally different. We were in our first band together. We went totally different directions. We don't like, we just don't, we kind of lost touch, mm-hmm. but it's just funny to me. But um, she, and she got me into details. Uh, uh, yeah. I used to, when details was not just a men's magazine that sucked. Yeah. It used to be this really great, I can't remember the writer. They had a woman columnist. I'll have to look it up. But I loved her. And then also, again, on the MTV tip, 
I wanted to be Kurt Loder so bad. <laughs> I loved I loved the juxtaposition of his news angle with what he was covering. Yeah, and besides his like weird unflappability while like all of this chaos will break out around him, he's and like he dealing was, with rock stars. Yes, he was like he was like this like I don't know, like Tom Brokaw yeah. of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And and I I lived for Week and Rock. I watched <laughs> Week and Rock every week like I wanted to do that. And then I love Tabitha Sorin and um, Allison. Oh, what's her name? She's now She now does stuff, I think, for radio. But they also had women. Yeah. And, um, but Kurt Loder really shaped that for me. And so that's kind of where my my writing, where my voices came from. Again, it was not so much from books as it was from uh, magazine, either television or, or print. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of last things I want to talk to you about, and I think that they're both kind of rife with possibilities. So <laughs> let's uh, let's get in a little bit, because we were just talking about harassment. I've dealt a lot with internet harassment lately, and I feel like a lot of women do, yeah. and I know that... Uh, it's a silent epidemic. You have a lot of shit that is said to and about you, and like the comment sections get a little rough in in the Brie Davies articles. Um, yeah, I don't which, read them. Well, I wouldn't either. Um, I will actually talk to you about some of your subject matter that gets people on oh, a tangent soon. Yeah. But um, meanwhile, I just kind of want to talk to you about internet harassment and how sure. does that affect you? It's hard because I'm a very emotional person, mm-hmm. um, and I take things very personally. And I have a persona online and um, in my writing that makes people think that I am invincible. Yeah. Um, and I'm even though I try to approach my subjects with vulnerability, when I talk about when I'm learning something, like as I'm as I learned about what trans, for instance, transphobia was and how I had played a part in some transphobic conversations and things. I, I, I just use that as an example because that was a time when I had to present myself in an article and say, I fucked up. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was saying. And this is how I learned it. Um, so I, as much as I present myself as vulnerable, because my opinions tend to be... A commenter once called me a boring contrarian. <laughs> Which <laughs> cracked me up because um, I don't choose my opinions to be contrary. Mm-hmm. I don't choose my opinions to be vexing or... Uh, Such an insult that's targeted towards women. To- no. Contrarian I, is not a word that's used for men. <laughs> I know, I know. That's, they're strong for having for standing up for what they believe in. But <laughs> what, uh, for me, um, it's always... I don't know where it came from. It may be, again, my, my growing up with um, parents that said, don't compromise what you believe and be honest about what you, you believe in. So I approach things by, um, by, on, by honesty in that I don't believe in guilty pleasure. I don't believe, in, as in like, I hate the term guilty pleasure for a music like mm-hmm. category. Right. Your brain and your heart and your body don't know the difference between why <laughs> you're reacting to Joy Division and why you're reacting to Jack Johnson. And yeah. like I'm using those examples because those are two artists that I l- like to like art entities that I love. Mm-hmm. I understand on a cerebral level why I love Jack Johnson. It's memory filled. It feels good. It's like it's like eating oatmeal or something. I don't know, but I love it. And I would go to see him and I would go there to feel that feeling. And then joy division is this incredible experience that I didn't have until I was in my late twenties. And and I met Valerie, like my musician soulmate. And our first band practice was watching control the story of joy division. That was our band practice was watching this movie together that set us off on this trajectory of amazing emotional friendship and music um, but I understand, so I understand the difference between those things, but I would not categorize Jack Johnson as a guilty pleasure and Joy Division as an upper echelon elitist, because <laughs> that's what it really is. It's elitism. Yeah, it is elitism. I agree it's, with that. It, and so, um, so anyway, so ba- so that's kind of how my opinions are in general is they're not meant to be contrary. Um, they are, I just feel what I believe and I say it and whether it makes sense to people or not, I don't know. My hope is that uh, it will resonate with one person who says, oh, cool, I felt that way too. Or I don't agree with this person, but I see what they're saying and it makes me feel stronger about my opinion. Right. So that's what I, that's what I do. And so that causes a lot of controversy. Um, and in a typical, in the typical internet fashion, when I cover things like uh, women's rights, um, LGBTQ rights, um, the rights for homeless and uh, people in 
and I'm not lumping people together as homeless and in poverty or people that are not recognized by the status quo because they don't have the money to exist in our society. Right. Um, so I advocate for those people because they are so, this is like, we'll go into, if we ever talk about Denver, this is like so important to the vibrancy of what Denver is, which is representing all people. But um, so when I go into those issues and healthcare, obviously, um, those things tend to bring trolls and trolls are people I assume they're people I don't know <laughs> that have opinions that are meant to harm others yeah and that's the opposite of what I do I mm-hmm. do not have an opinion to harm others I have an opinion to help others see what they want to see in the world and to bring up a conversation to right. be like to say hey why are we not talking about this or you know and that's like I'm not trying to toot my own horn but especially in the small market that I'm in in Denver as a writer I bring up a lot of things that larger news organizations will follow my lead and start covering. Yeah, true. I've seen it. it. Seen it happen all the time, and um, it's 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 humbling to me, um, and it's very nice that it happens, but it's also very frustrating yeah. because it's like why the do I also is humbling? <laughs> right? Why do I have to take the lead for you to jump into this conversation? But anyway, so um, when it comes to harassment, I don't read the comments generally. I tend to delete messages that I get sent before I read them if it seems um, inflammatory in any way because as my really wonderful and supportive boyfriend knows, he calls it like my downward spiral where something will trigger my emotions and make me feel shitty because someone has said, fuck you, Brie Davies, I hope you die because I love Dave Grohl and you hate Dave Grohl. (laughs) And I don't hate Dave Grohl, I just have issues with what he stands for. Um, And then I'll take that in if I read it, and I'll just be like, oh, maybe I should read, I just got to get a real job, I should quit writing, it doesn't matter, everything I do doesn't matter, it hurts so much that people hate me. And then my boyfriend's like, this is not true. Yeah. And like like the piece I wrote about um, worshiping, the false worship of Paul McCartney, which Mm -hmm. I think is a... I keep hoping that as soon as all of these, eventually in a generation when everybody who knew Paul McCartney dies, that will stop worshiping the Beatles, but that's not (laughs) probably going to happen. And again, it's not personal. I would never wish anything terrible on someone like Paul McCartney, nor would I cut down his accomplishments as a musician. When I wrote this piece um, that I didn't want to worship Paul McCartney anymore, or I didn't want people to worship Paul McCartney anymore in the same way that they do, it, it's, I was soliciting a lot of um, negative feedback, obviously, because that is a strong topic. It was funny to me because, like, I checked the internet that morning, <laughs> and it was, like, to me, everything I, like, wanted to read, because I feel like it's just some cardinal sin, like, for anybody to be, like, I honestly just don't think that Paul McCartney has anything else to offer us. Like, yeah, I mean, it's great that he's been great for so long or whatever, but, like, I just don't see what else he's going to do for us. So Well, and what he represents, which is this entire arc of rock history that steps over all of the women and the people of color and the gender nonconforming artists who were there and ignored, who were not given money, who were not given record deals, who were not allowed into shows, who were not allowed on bills, who were not allowed to record. The Beatles and Paul McCartney... Um, are part of a thing that has blocked out everything else that was happening. Yeah, and, and which you know, continues to and this people day. Go, Jimmy, like, well, what about Jimi Hendrix? And I'm like, Jimi Hendrix is another thing. But Jimi Hendrix cannot be the... Jimi Hendrix is essentially an outlier. I mean, it's like no one ever says, what about Chuck Berry? Like, yeah. you know, and I love Chuck Berry, and he did things. And he was a fucking hairdresser in Detroit. Can mm. you imagine what he had to go through to get anyone to pay attention to him? He didn't. He wasn't Elvis, you know. Yeah. But um. But anyway, so I wrote that piece. It, it it got a lot of response, and I read a little bit of it, and it really hurt me from just from being an emotional person. Mm-hmm. And I'm sensitive, and I cry, and that's when I cry, which is funny because I don't cry at sad things. Really, I cry when I get hurt. And my my wonderful boyfriend stayed up one night after I had fallen asleep. I'd had this like spiral of I'm quitting writing. I can't do this anymore. And depression spiral. And he stayed up and took out every single comment from this article that was supporting me. Mm -hmm. And he put it into a document. And then he um, wrote a paragraph about all of the things that people had said negatively and how they had their right to their opinion. But I, my opinion was just as valid. And it was like, 
it took that much for me to feel like I wasn't totally wrong was for someone to say like <laughs> and I mean again it's not about being wrong it's just about like I just I'm sensitive I guess I think everybody is and that's why I steer clear of reading comments and trying not to participate in harassment without I try to support other writers basically that mm -hmm. put themselves out there more than I do right which is a lot and it seems also that, like, writing to me is, like, when somebody rejects certain things, like, people maybe just aren't into, like, your kind of music or something like that, but writing is, like, what your thoughts are. So whenever somebody is, like, really rejecting your thoughts, it seems that it's there's a level of aggression to it Yeah. that it goes deep. Yeah, versus just reaction, mm -hmm. you know? Because you can say, I don't like that song or that record doesn't really resonate with me, but... You say, I read that piece and it really pissed me off, you know? Right. Which is fine. I want that. I don't ever expect everyone to agree. I, I do not set out for people to agree with me. I right. really don't. But I also don't set out to piss people off. I set out to make people think about what they think they know mm -hmm. by questioning what I thought I knew. And then what I found to maybe not be so true. On the note of not wanting to, like, upset anybody or piss anyone off, I kind of just want to talk about some of the people who we both think that <laughs> maybe we don't have to talk about that much anymore. Yeah. For instance, like, um, you have written, you just, like, you know, what got so, so many people upset whenever you wrote about your <laughs> breakup letter to Billy Corgan which I loved so much and it was like the perfect thing for me to see that day for sure um and then like there was like the piece on David Grawl who like it you know everybody just lost their shit even though David Grawl has like really actively been insulting music for yeah. years and yeah. insulting he does the same thing that I was talking about earlier where the white guy says hey you just have to work harder and you'll yeah. like get it done oh, and it's yeah. just like you're saying that only to other white guys. Like, you're only oh, saying only that to... Oh, only to other older white guys. Yeah. Because he really believes that there's no good music right now. Yeah. And, and I've heard absurd. that in many speeches where he's been given an extremely high platform, whether it's South by Southwest or, like, a speech at a college or... It's an, it's kind of nuts. Yeah. Me. And he's like, we've invented music and then it's over. And now no, there is no music. Like, it's just really obscene. bizarre. It's obscene because he makes money off of people that still love music. Yeah. And also the fact that, like, where did all the music go? You can't just say that, like, all of a sudden somebody stopped making great art. Like, that's never going to happen. No, it never is. Just because, you, <laughs> know, you know what? It's because people don't know where to find it or they get lazy. I mean, I'm 35 years old. I know what the average person my age is like about music. Yeah. They're very jaded. Um, and this is why reunion tours do really well right now. Right. And I really could care less about seeing um, a band that I loved when I was 16 perform a record in its entirety. Yeah. Even my band, even bands I love to death, I don't want to see them do that. I saw the Pixies do it, and it, I yeah. haven't listened to the Pixies since. since. I yeah. had no it's, desire to see that. It's not, to me, it's not organic, and it's a symptom of the industry making yeah. money off of your nostalgia. And the things that they ignored actively. Yeah. So they go, oh... People did get into that band, did mm -hmm. they? Like, oh, here's how we can go ahead and work that back around. And that's just... And make some money where we didn't make money before. And they don't need we more money. Bet, we wouldn't bank on that band being valuable. So we wouldn't put them... We wouldn't, we wouldn't give them money for tour, you know? We right. wouldn't... I mean, yeah, I, it's why I'm so anti-Riot. Like, Riot Fest to me is the epitome of what yep. is wrong with, with the state of... Uh, well, it's mainly rock and roll because yeah. they only cater to, as my friend said, Warp Tour for Dads. Yeah. It's Warp Tour for Dads. And it's a lot of times music I love. We got very lucky that uh, L7 and um, Babes in Toyland were asked to be a part. Yeah, wow. Which I can't imagine maybe was from so many of us women saying, hey, nostalgia junkies, this was also happening during this time and we would love to see these bands again. Yeah. You know? Um, there's a great article that someone wrote about how Unwound will never, ever, ever reunite. And I thought, thank you. Yeah. For never reuniting. Thank you. Don't go never. backwards. Why no. go backwards? You shouldn't, the people who I if see you, who are playing the same shit 20 years later, uh, it's like, how, you should be ashamed of yourself. Like, there's people who are. Get out there. 
that's what the one that made me laugh the most was Weezer doing the Blue Album. I'm like, Weezer's never stopped doing the Blue Album. Yeah. Have you seen them in the last <laughs> 15 years? They play the fucking Blue Album. <laughs> I I saw them on the Blue Album tour the first time. It was amazing. They made two great records. This is where I'm gonna sound like an old person. They made two great records, and then they continued to make shit records. And um, why the fuck would you do a blue album in its entirety just so old fuckers like me can have their fucking enjoyment of music again? And they only go to getting out there and seeing that like Bandcamp is this insane record store of people you've never heard of, Mm -hmm. of kids in their bedrooms making music that moves the fuck out of me like the Courtney's like Colleen Green like I just heard this new a newish girl Frankie Cosmos mm-hmm. girl pool girl pool <laughs> have you seen girl pool yeah girl pool it will blow your mind I would pay $50 to see girl pool mm-hmm. over seeing Weezer play the fucking blue album again yep yeah we've like, seen Weezer what <laughs> <laughs> God, yeah, give me yes if you're gonna bring something back. Shit, true, or like anything really. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I was I was gonna ask what some of your the stuff that you're into right now. Like I know that obviously Denver's changed a lot since I was here, but some of the same great bands are playing. I'll just ask you what makes you so committed to working in Denver and yeah. living in Denver, and then you can kind of tell me a little bit about that, and then sure. kind of work your way into the scene of Denver. Okay, um, so I grew up in Denver. I wear it as a badge of honor a little bit just because. Um, so many people are moving here now mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that because so many of my friends like you are not from here. Yeah. And, um, people that are not from here have made Denver great just as much as those of us who have been here. Yes. But for me, um, my roots in Denver are so deep and so strong when it comes to music that I just feel very proud about it. And I've made it my mission to, as a writer and a person that yells a lot on the internet about things that I think are important, um, and even sometimes as a musician, um, I made it my mission to tell people what Denver sounds like to me. There's nothing wrong with the music that is associated with Denver, but the majority of the things that people think of when they think of Denver is like more Americana. Or like the Flowbots. Yeah, and the like Flowbots are my homies, and 303, I love their like party rap, like for real. I've been one of their longest and oldest supporters. And they're they're great music. And like the fray, not really my thing, but they've done really amazing things with uh, youth on record. They've donated quite a bit of money and equipment. Like right. they give a shit. Denver, people that come out of Denver really care about Denver, which is cool. But there's this layer um, that's just underneath this layer of what people see it is the thing that actually exists to me, yeah. which is the DIY culture, which tends to be more experimental, a lot of times electronic, but actually there's no genre that's specific to Denver. Yeah. Um, it's just weirdo to yeah, me. Yeah, I agree. And I think part of it is because we're isolated. Um, mm-hmm. I think I called it, I call it like the Queen City Wasteland, where like people all, uh, now we're a very popular city. Um, people with money want to move here and check it out. And um, so that's what makes me very nervous. But what I've been trying to do as this giant influx of people and money is coming is trying to prop up these people that are making music that are us. Mm-hmm. So that includes, uh, that includes hip hop and um, that includes conscious raising music that includes um, our extremely vibrant um, Chicano and Latino music, whether that is in the form of more Americanized popular music or otherwise like, and then weirdo, electronic, experimental, just non-traditional shit you don't hear on the radio music. And that is what weird Denver is to me. And that is like what is embodied in places like Mutiny Information Cafe and and Rhinoceropolis, Glob, um, Mouth House, you know, your place, Mega House was one of those. I mean, there's there's houses after house after house after warehouse that has hosted a piece of this story and that's the story that I really want to get to the masses which is Denver is not just skiing and weed and beer and white guys and craft brews and (laughs) western wild west history and I mean we are the city of people Um, we're a city of 
color. We're a city of vibrant um, activism. And so much of that is embodied in the art that we make. And that's what I want people to know about Denver is like we have feminist artists. We have, again, we, I mean, we have a strong Black Lives Matter contingent. We have Black Lives Matter 5280. I get so excited about it because I want people to know what Denver really looks like. And we look like I mean, we're in the, we're kind of in the Southwest. Like, we're much more brown than we're shown in the media. Yeah. (laughs) Like, and I mean that in a wonderful way. Like, people of color have been here and people of color have created Colorado. And I'm seeing so much of that history and that rootedness be covered up. Well, and there's even racism being um, promoted in media's, uh, the way that media covers not it's not violence necessarily but the shifting of our neighborhoods mm-hmm. and how they're covering it i just read this awful story on fox 31's website about they interview one white business owner in five points who talks about the gang and drug oh. activity and how this is affecting his business and Jeez. i was just like do you know who those people are the people who you just kicked out of their Have homes. You talk to them. Do you know what they're going through? Like our homelessness situation is out of control. Affordable housing is a joke. Like all of this to me is intertwined in the story of Denver. One component of it that I'm very familiar with, but but is by no means the whole story, is the artist community being displaced because yes. artists need um, cheap and available um, housing and workspace, and Denver has always had. Yeah. Until recently. And now it's it's locked down. Right. And it's disappearing. So um, now more than ever is when we need to talk about why Denver is made up of people that uh, are not being represented. Because Denver is also rapidly losing artists. Oh, left and right. And I've talked about that too. I, I use Twitter as a big platform, but I know many artists like yourself who have left Denver because they don't find a place for women who are making art. And there's not a safe place for women to make art. And there's not a voice for... I have to fight sometimes to get people to pay attention to what women are doing. Yeah. Especially in Denver. Yeah. Especially in Denver. And I know so many artists that I care about who have left this city because they don't have a place. Mm-hmm. Like an, an actual... They can't express themselves in a way that gets them an audience I mean you know we're also really just constantly I think beguiled by creeps yeah that's just a huge thing here and I know it's a big thing everywhere but it's huge here yeah yeah and the culture again we're a little bit behind when it comes to like um protective DIY culture yeah um I would say a lot of behind I would say safe space is um an overused term yeah Um, when it's not actually created. And that can also be seen in our lack of gathering spaces and social gathering spaces for LGBTQ folks. Or that are run by women. Or that are run by women, absolutely. Um, Whether that's DIY or, you know, your average. I mean, like, there's a great, like, mini documentary on Broadly that J.D. Sampson does uh, called It's About the Last Lesbian Bars in America. Yeah. And um, the question sort of at the end is, are these spaces disappearing because we don't need them anymore? Because we're sort of integrating into a new realm where gay, lesbian, you know, every sort of person and um, orientation can coexist? Or are they disappearing because they're being forced out? And um, in some ways we are sort of coming together, but in other ways, I mean, Denver's Denver's quote-unquote gay bar situation is... A lifelong nightmare. Sad. It's awful. It's really awful. It scared me away from gay bars. I like We're, don't really go to them now. No. I mean, unless you're, a, you know, unless you're a masculine, for the most part, masculine acting cis gay man, you don't have a space. Yeah, agree. You know, and I mean, blush and blue and like X bar sometimes, but like there's exceptions for, through yeah. the whole everything we're saying. There's even exceptions like, too. Oh, you know, older people who are in the LGBTQ community, like we don't have, we're losing these spaces. And that is another part of the component of the, the sort of whitewashing and um, hetero washing of Denver. Because as you well know, Denver has a really long and st- like thriving queer subculture. Oh my God. It's one of the ways I came up as a teenager was, um, you know, tracks nightclub now is like a very well-known um, 
hub for we have a huge incredible drag community yeah and um keith garcia's movie yeah which is i'm so happy is happening because we get to say like denver has and the reason that denver has this hub for drag is because individuals cared enough to say i'm here i'm from here i'm staying here i'm gonna make it big and um but before tracks was that sort of bigger mainstream spot it used to be this more underground club yeah and um i went there because they had 16 and up nights in high school yeah and so you know gay culture and and, uh you know rave culture have always been intertwined and the music of our people (laughs) yeah that was another component of my growing up um as a teenager that I think I credit Denver for because we were this dusty town that no one knew about or gave a shit about. So we could kind of do whatever we wanted. Yeah. So I do miss that initial lawlessness of Denver whenever I first got here where it was just like, I can just hang out in this warehouse and like, no one's policing me. Nobody knows where I am. Nobody knows what I'm doing. Nobody cares. I, my, my best friend is, uh, she grew up in Malibu. She went to college and worked in Queens. And then she moved here about 12 years ago. And she always says Denver is where you can let your freak flag fly. True. And But I, I worry that that is um, disappearing Changing. as we lose the spaces where we're able, you know, like... Like Paris on the Platte closed six months ago ish, and um, and it was at the the will of the owner. Mm-hmm. She had been running that space for thirty years. She was done. The market is insane. You can make a ton of money and and get out of here. But there were so many communities of artists that had utilized that space. Yeah, so many. I mean, I hear from the Black Actors Guild used it, and those guys are in their early twenties. Yeah, and um, they're doing incredible incredible work in Denver and that was a space for them but it was also an open mic space and it was also it was one of the first places I saw people playing video games online together you know it's where we went to smoke cigarettes like Mm -hmm. and so we're losing those kind of spaces and um that's what I worry about cities are becoming a curfewed place Mm -hmm. honestly like everywhere around the country I noticed that there's not a lot of coffee shops that are open all night. There's not a lot of places that you can go after 10 p.m. even. And it's weird to me that more people aren't upset about it. Yeah. It's like a strange thing that our, like, that our lawlessness is, like, kind of vanishing. Mm-hmm. Um, those spaces are spa- safe spaces for people, especially young people that don't necessarily have somewhere to go. Oh, yeah, yeah. You Whenever know? I was young and homeless, like, I hung out at all-night coffee shops. Absolutely, because you could be there unhassled. Cannot go to a shelter and have the same experience. Right. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you go to a shelter, like, a lot of times you are going to be actively harassed, yes. and you're especially going to be harassed if you're a queer kid. Yeah. So, yeah, being, like, a queer kid, being homeless, those were, like, the spots that I always would hang. Yeah. Um. So what, what with all of this that we, like, have, <laughs> we have all of these problems with Denver, um, yeah. but, like, obviously it comes do. from a place of love. Yeah. Uh, and I would just like to know, kind of, what, right now in the scene, do you think is worthy of attention like I know that you are close to a lot of different parts of Denver and mm-hmm. so like what's the theater scene like what's the music scene like who are standing out to you right now um it's mostly centered around spaces that allow um for for art to be presented so for me I think about Rhinoceropolis which changes with the people that live there yep it always has it's been around for a decade and it, it's it's good it's good and terribleness has come from directly from the people that have been involved there mm-hmm. right okay. now um maddie is there yep johnson and um I she's think an angel she's making an impact on denver that is not um being fully recognized by of course not the mainstream of, of the course world. it's not but yeah she's um, you're right she's, she's incredible been she, doing such work that has been uh so she's supportive a, she's a musician she runs tiny amp records she also books for syntax so she also books syntax physic opera i know yeah. a lot of stuff there and that shows because her taste um, and her connection to an extremely marginalized community it shows that's a space that's important to me um Again, Mutiny Information Cafe is this little island of weird Denver on Broadway where we are quickly becoming um, the sports bars of rock and roll. And uh, I love that Mutiny exists because, again, it's a home for a lot of um, comedy. And comedy is a thing that we have in Denver that we have that's going incredibly well for 
all people. Yeah. You want to look at a diverse scene. Now, and I'm not going to say it's still not dominated by heterosexual white men, but the heterosexual white men that are sort of, I wouldn't say in charge, but are really running things are extremely conscious individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, If we look at who's left here from um, Fine Gentlemen's Club, Sam Talent is rooted in Denver's DIY culture and makes a extremely conscious effort to um, create diverse experiences within the comedy community. Kevin O'Brien is another one. I... I could not think of a person that I respect more in an in in an art form that I don't work in directly in comedy that I I, I respect him so much because he does that and also his his partner who's um, a comedian too Meryl Wiles, Timmy Lastly, these um, these women are out there creating spaces. Uh, Jordan Wiliba like for every I, like our, she's hilarious by the way I follow her Twitter. Scenes, it's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, so that's something I, I think about a lot. Uh, as to, in terms of just straight musicianship, it's hard because I always forget who I'm thinking, like who I think about at the time, but like the Milk Blossoms, um, Colin Ward, always making art that moves me. Um, Church Fire. Church Fire, <laughs> yeah. Shan- and Shannon's uh, just her presence, her sheer presence and, you know, in Dangerous Nonsense. Bollywood Life, I love Anton's um, attitude towards art, and he's like... <laughs> 18 years old or yeah. something. He's incredible. Um, you know... Uh, Pythian Whispers. Pythian Whispers. Crab Lab, Future Single Mom. Like that sort of that sort of group of musicians that tends to work together. Um, ben Donahauer, who makes some of my favorite music ever. Um, I'm trying to think. There's, there's so much. Um, and then, of course, in the hip-hop, like Molina Speaks is someone that uses his platform as an artist and a teacher to tell the story of Denver. Um, he has a great song called Everyday Denver that you can find on SoundCloud, and it embodies so much of what's happening in Denver, and I it, it gives me chills to think about it. Um, I love Bianca. Bianca McCann. Um you know, again, and then we, and then we, I'm thinking about like Susie Q. Smith and, and the poet, the slam poetry and the spoken word communities, which are also talk about vibrant representations. Minor Disturbance is the youth poetry slam group, and um, they're supported by the sort of elders of slam poetry, and that's what's so necessary as adult, like as a 35 year old person, I know that I have to create. Uh, a safe space and I have to be a supporter so that younger people can step up and then say what they're feeling and what they're seeing. Yeah. Which is like, you know, and then we talk about like tit wrench and my friend Sarah Slater who tirelessly works to create lineups that in, are inclusive. And, mm-hmm. you know, she brought in Kubala, who's an, an MC from Fort Collins. Like, yeah, there are women of color making hip hop in Fort Collins. Like, yeah. we have that. That exists. Let's see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sarah Slater does a really great job of that. And she's also tapped into the global feminist uh, music scene. So, her her um, festival Tit Wrench also inspired other festivals yeah. around the country. Gatas, Ivatas, um, but then like also my friend uh, Rue Johnson, Rue Black, and mm-hmm. what she does, she's a one woman PR machine. Rue works, she works in this realm of hip hop that is very difficult for women to, uh, for me as a woman to to survive in. And yeah. she not only survives, she owns and runs that shit. And yeah. she puts on incredible shows. Again, it just takes a little bit of digging. So it, that's what I would love to end on is when people ask me, what can I do in Denver to make a difference? And that like sounds so cheesy. Like, what can I do to change the way that culture is being perceived? It's not about changing the culture. Our culture is here. It is great. You can add to it. Yeah. But it is not, it doesn't not exist. It's mm-hmm. showing it. So I recommend that you go to shows um, of musicians that you don't know that are local. I recommend you go to venues that you don't usually go to that tend to book local bands um, or local artists or local, you know, local, I don't want to like just limit it to, to bands. Um, yeah. Go to art openings. Our art, our visual art community is nuts. Yeah. Like off the chain. Molly Bounds is one of my favorite. I, any opportunity I get to talk about how amazing she is, I do because her not only is her art incredible, um, her work ethic, she's everywhere. She's all she's working all the time, but she's an, you know a tireless worker. So get out to art openings, comedy shows, theater. I don't know a lot about our theater scene, but I know that it is pretty amazing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So we're losing a lot of spaces because of real estate situations. And the way that you can combat that directly is by going out and paying money to see art. Uh, Marisa DeMarco from the Gata, who started Gatazi Vatas, she's amazing. Um, but she, that's one of the things that I, I quote her saying that changed my view very, very strongly, which is the most radical act you can do is pay for art, someone's art. You can pay to, if you pay an artist for their art, you are changing. The, their world and in turn changing your world but and they will the remember money. you forever, forever. so I remember every person that pays me buy art pay for shows um go out and see people that you've never met before in person get to know other people be a part of the community anybody can book shows and be an artist and be a musician and um so if you've had that thought in your mind and never done it because you're too afraid to or you don't think that you belong like if there's anywhere that you could still do it it's probably Denver um, so go out and do that. And then the last thing I would say is vote um, because our city is so much ruled by our city council, which makes a lot of decisions about things like real estate and how much play developers and say developers have in the city and development happening in Denver is directly affecting our art community and our and our communities of color and our low-income communities. And um, it is negatively affecting that. And the way that you can combat that is uh, writing to your city council, but uh, voting and telling other people to vote and um, being invested in your community. Neighborhood so, meetings yeah. and stuff. Go there and cause a ruckus because sometimes the neighborhood meeting is just a bunch of white people that just moved into the neighborhood. Yeah. And look like one kind of thing. And you got to get in there and be like, like at mine, I'm like, why are there no Spanish-speaking people at this meeting? Because I'm pretty sure the majority of my neighborhood is Spanish-speaking. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm the minority. And where are those, where are my neighbors? You know? Right. So, yeah, speaking up and not being afraid to speak up in whatever capacity that is.